You can open your Bibles this morning, if you will, to the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking this morning at chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. Uh, as you're turning there, I, I did want to just highlight a few announcements here in the, the bulletin for you. It's on the weekly word as well. But uh, this insert, just really want to make you known of a free concert. John and Mary Geiger, these are friends of my parents. Um, you know, in fact, I wasn't playing. Dad, would you like to say anything about them? I know it's kind of, I didn't talk to him beforehand, but you want to. There's an endorsement from him. I know Carissa went and heard them in Arizona at a nursing home. I think you said Carissa, right? You going to stand and say anything at all? No, she doesn't. <laughs> but she enjoys. So maybe just a good family night, maybe a good date night or something that you can you can do. Want to highlight that also on the backside. Just again a reminder of Norm Norm Wakefield marriage conference. Really encourage all of you if you can to come to that. Find a babysitter and come. Um, the price is $35 until next Sunday morning, until next Sunday night, whatever. Then we've got to tell Kishwaukee Bible Church how many people are coming. And uh, if you give me a check, that means you're in. If you don't see a check, it's $50 after that. So if you have any difficulties with that, um, just please let us know, um, and we can help you financially on that. That will be a great time at the clock tower. Norm Weekfield's an excellent man, and uh, it's going to be a great time. Uh, his session, too, here called The Marriage Anchored in Christ. Um, Avon, when she found out that, um, that Norm Wakefield was going to come and speak, she said, oh, I hope that he speaks this message anchored in Christ. And maybe can we call him or tell him or talk with the elders at Kishwaukee Bible Church, tell him. And um, I said, well, maybe. And then the schedule came out, and there it was. And uh, Marriage Anchored in Christ is basically a summary of Hebrews to show how Jesus is better and uh, how Jesus is where our anchor is, where our hope is. Take from chapter 6, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul. It's going to be the thing that, that carries your marriage along, is Jesus being an anchor of your soul, anchor of your marriage. So I encourage you to, to come to that. That's a, that's a great thing. Uh, also, just to let you know, next week is Daylight Savings Time. Uh, if you miss, you can join us for prayer. So if you come, you're driving, oh, we missed it, just, just keep coming. That's God's sovereignty upon your life. To come and join us for prayer, that would be that'd be good. Oratory is coming up in a couple of weeks. See Lance and Juanita Milton if you're interested in that. So those are the announcements. Just I finished my message. Won't need to say anything. But we are Hebrews chapter one. I, I told you last week that our society has come to view angels a bit um, differently than did the Jews of the first century. Uh, our society views angels differently than they appear in the scriptures. In the Scriptures, we see them as, as powerful, sovereign, mighty warriors. And yet today, people tend to, we might see them as gentle women with wings coming to comfort us in our sorrows and our trouble and our tears. Well, that was Sunday. And then the next Tuesday, I picked up the Rockford Register Star. And I, and I came across this advertisement by rockfordwomen.com. It's got a picture here of... Uh, can you see that? If not, there it is. Yep, you can see it right up there. 
says, um, believe. And kids, what do you think this picture is a picture of? It's a picture of an angel. So they think, never, never mind that angels never appear as women in the Scriptures. They always appear as men. Um, and, and, and we're never told to believe in angels. Angels are just there and, and help. Um, yet this is, this is the, the tenor of many people in our society today. They see these angels as nice beings. We just need to believe in them. And uh, this is going to be a talk November 12th. I'm not putting a plug for this talk, but Joan Wester Anderson is going to speak at Forest Hills Community Club. And uh, she's going to speak about an afternoon with angels. Is really what it's what it's going to be. She has written. I, I I looked her up on the internet. Don't know much about. Don't know anything about her. But she's written books like these, like Where Angels Walk, In the Arms of Angels, Guardian Angels, The Power of Angels, and An Angel to Watch Over Me. Apparently, she's become quite an expert on angels. Um, I don't know anything about these books. I don't know anything about this woman who did this. But but I don't think it's an accident that she's going to be speaking at a women's gathering primarily. It's not an accident. I mean, men aren't interested in precious moment figurines flying around. <laughs> We're not. I don't think it's scriptural. And my suspicion is that, that Joan Wester Anderson's fascination with angels is only partly grounded on scripture. And, and I, I suspect, though I don't know, you can go out and prove me wrong, that, that'll be fine, you can prove me wrong, but I suspect that, that her stories are mostly gained experiences of people who claim to have been helped by angels. Now, they may be true, they may not be true, we don't know, but all these experiences of people with angels, lots of strings of anecdotes probably, people have been in great dangers and been rescued from them, but I would suspect that, that there would be little scripture in these books for the reason simply that if you study angels in scripture, you'll find out that they themselves have their own fascination. People might be fascinated with angels, but angels have their own fascination. You know what the angels are fascinated with? They're, they're fascinated with us. And they're fascinated with the Lord. But, but they are, are interested, they are obsessed with Jesus Christ and the salvation that He brings. They observe, as Ephesians chapter 3 says, they observe the church to see how the relationships get with people who sin against one another in the church. Because as other angels sinned in their domain, they just know they've been banished forever. They don't know of, of fellow sinning angel relationships. They, they marvel to see what the Gospel does with people. It says in 1 Peter 1 verse 12 that they long to look into this salvation that God has given them. They don't know of grace personally. They're sinless beings. But they long to look to understand God's grace looking at Jesus through the eyes of faith that we have. They're around the throne rejoicing when any sinner repents. They are fatuated. They are obsessed with God. You can read about that in John chapter 12, about the angels around the throne worshiping Jesus. That's the glory that Isaiah saw is really the glory of Jesus. And one would think that anybody who's fascinated with angels ought to be fascinated with the one with whom the angels are fascinated with, right? And alas, there are many whose hearts are fascinated with angels, but they miss the one who's greater than the angels. Well, if any passage would help those sorts of people, this passage in Hebrews chapter 1 would help them because this passage sets before how Jesus is better than the angels. You can see it right there in verse 4 of chapter 1. Jesus has become much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. 
and verses 5 through 14 make the same point over and over and over and over and over again, saying Jesus Christ is better than the angels. He quotes from seven different Old Testament passages saying that Jesus is better than the angels. And what's interesting, in my study this week, as I looked here at Hebrews 1 again and really, really delved into here, I was amazed at how all these passages interrelate and intersect with one another and really have a, a similar kind of feel and theme. They're not just unrelated texts they just kind of grabbed here and there and there. And they're not just texts that even talk about Jesus in a, in a way. They all lift Jesus up in a similar kind of fashion. They point to Jesus as being the anointed Messiah. Several of these texts allude to it or even in the context of them speak about the messianic promises that there are. These, these texts, several of them point to Jesus as God Himself. Several of these texts uh, uh, describe Jesus as being the King. They tell of how Jesus is the Creator and, and several of them it even speaks about how Jesus will endure forever being God. And so all of them have the same kind of flavor of, uh, we, of themes woven in the midst of them. And that's why I think it's a, it's a harmony. It's really a symphony. Sim with, phony sound. Sounding together with all these Scriptures are speaking the same thing. They're, they're singing the same melody that Jesus is better than the angels, right? And so the conclusion is this. Jesus is better, so believe in Jesus, right? You don't need to believe the angels. Believe what the angels believe is Jesus. Don't be fascinated by the angels. Be fascinated by what the angels are fascinated by. My aim this morning is the same as last week. I just want to lift Jesus high so your love for Him would increase, so your worship for Him would increase. Worship of Him would increase. That, that He would just be high in our lives. I think as we have a high view of Jesus, so will our lives be helped. Well, in verses 4-7 through seven last week, we looked at, at these, these verses and we saw the the fact that the details of the passage might be difficult, but we saw the main point being crystal clear, that Jesus is better than the angels. You know, if you write in your Bibles, which I would encourage you to do, maybe draw a box right around verse 4, and then just say main point, because it's the main point of all of chapter 1. He's better than the angels. And I'm, we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 8, but it's right in the middle of this whole main point. Everything hinges on verse 4, so... We're going to go 5 and following and just we'll pick up 5, 6, and 7 by way of review really quick. And those are points in your outline so you can fill them in. Maybe you remember there are points in your outline or maybe you, you forget. If you remember, you can write them in. That would be good. Point number 1, verse 5, Jesus is the Son. To which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you, and I will be a father to Him, and He shall be a son to Me. The point here is that none of the angels have ever been given the name of Son. And ask the Son, Jesus owns a name better than the angels ever have. Because the Son is the heir, and the heir is higher than the servant, which angels are, as verse 14 says. They are mere servants. But Jesus is the Son. He's the heir. Well, the next point come here in verses 6 and 7. Jesus is worshipped. Verse 6, And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all the angels of God worship Him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The, the point is the contrast between verses 6 and 7. Uh, the first hand, you see the divine fiat coming from the throne of God itself, a command to the angels. Angels, you must worship Jesus. 
And then the contrast comes in verse 7 about angels on the other hand. You are ministers. You are servants. You are messengers. You are not to be worshipped. And just as the lesser is blessed by the greater, so also is the greater worshipped by the lesser. And as Jesus is worshipped by angels, it makes Jesus better than the angels. The logic, I think, is clear. It's easy. It's right before us. That was by way of review. If you missed it, Details are on the internet. My notes are. You can go out there, look at it. copy of my sermon, by the way, always from last week, is on the back table. You want to pick that up and say, oh, that was, that was, hope, hope you say this, that was a really good sermon last week. I need to pick up a copy of notes. They should probably be gone every week is what should happen. So, so. Well, this morning, we come to a third point. Jesus is royalty. This is verses nine, 8 and 9. And by this I merely mean that Jesus is the King. He's he's royal. None of the angels have ever assumed the title of King. Nor have any of the angels ever been anointed King. But Jesus has. You can see it here right in verses 8 and 9. As I read verses 8 and 9, I want for you to to think in your mind, where where are kingly words, kingly metaphors? And kids, even I've got your notes, you've got to circle them when you see the kingly metaphors. He says, it's your throne. But of the Son, he says, so he's speaking to Jesus of the throne. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness above your companions. What words do you see that are royalty here? Shout them out. What's, what's one word you see? What do I hear? Throne, right? Verse 8. He has a throne. It says, Your throne, O God. It's only kings that sit on the throne. The king's servants stand around the throne and serve the one on the throne. He sits and they stand. And none of his angels ever had a throne. None of his angels ever got to sit on the throne. But rather, Jesus does because he's the king. He is royalty. What's another royalty word here? Scepter, right? Verse 8. In fact, his scepter is even called the righteous scepter. Only kings have scepters which they make their rule, their, their desires known. Maybe you remember the time when Esther came into the presence of the king. The king had to show the scepter that he was going to accept Esther into his presence. He, he, he points forth, he banishes. The scepter is a symbolic of his rule and reign and what he has. And Jesus has a scepter. None of the angels have a scepter. But Jesus is a scepter because he's a king. What, what's another kingly word here? Kingdom. Right, we see that at the end of verse 8. The scepter of his kingdom. Only kings have a kingdom. Everyone else is subject to the king. The king has a kingdom. It's his kingdom. We never see any of the angels possessing or ruling over a kingdom. But Jesus does. Any other kingly words you see there? Righteous. That's a, it's a good word. I'm not sure it's necessarily of king. Are angels righteous? Who said that over here? I forget who said it. Way back in there. Andrew said it. That's a good, good, thanks for being involved. Righteous, angels are righteous, right? It's his scepter, which is a righteous scepter. Any, any others you see? Anointed. Was that you, Andrew? No, who? Oh, it's Jared. Good job, Jared. Anointed. That is, a, it's a kingly word. God, your God, has anointed you. Priests are anointed. Prophets are also anointed. 
Kings are anointed. Maybe you remember the time when Samuel came and identified Saul as king of Israel. 1 Samuel 10, verse 1. Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you as ruler over his enemies? It was his anointing as the king. None of the angels were ever anointed. Only the king was. Right? You add up all of these things together. That Jesus has a throne, He has a, a righteous scepter, He has a kingdom, and that He is anointed. None, that, this is true of none of the angels. just shows you how much greater He is because He's royalty. And, and nowhere, it's interesting, does this aspect of royalty come out um, as clear as it does in the original context. These words are from Psalm 45, and it would do well for us to look back there. So turn your Bibles back to Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is called a marriage psalm. I'm disappointed Paola is not here today. Paola and Julio just got engaged this past week and they're not here because this is a marriage psalm. This could be a psalm for them. It's a, it's a song of love. I think the NIV even calls it a, a marriage song or a song of, of matrimony or a song of wedding or a wedding song or something like that in the, in the title. It is a wedding. It's celebrating a wedding, but it's not the wedding of everybody, of anybody. It is the wedding of the king. Look at verse 1. The psalmist says, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And one of the things I love about weddings is that weddings are happy occasions. Uh, almost always they are. Certainly there are unhappy weddings. Right, we get the shotgun wedding where, where you know the farmer Joe is standing there with a shotgun. I'm not sure that's such a happy wedding, but there are. Mo- I've never been to an unhappy wedding. Let's put it that way. Weddings are happy, joyous time. Two lives coming together to join us one. Two families coming together to have a bond together. All their friends coming to join in the celebration. The bride takes great pains to be seen in her best light. And the groom dons a tuxedo and stands before everybody, handsome as can be. The ceremony is filled with joy. Just watching the face of a bride and groom right, is, is worth any sacrifice it means to come to a, a wedding. The reception afterwards is a time of joy and rejoicing. Any conflicts before are kind of forgotten for that day. Any problems are forgotten. It is a joy of a wedding. And that's what the psalmist is speaking about here in verse 1. He just has a, has a heart that's overflowing with joy and happiness and he sets forth his desire to write out a few lyrics dedicated to the king who is soon to be wed. His thoughts then continue in verse 2 by describing the groom. He says, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you Forever. Here is the king in all his beauty, lifted up, being fairer than anybody. You are more handsome than anybody in the land. And God's grace is upon him as he receives his favor, being blessed forever and ever. His strength is described in verses 3 through 5. For, so picture it. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Picture here is military strength. Here's the king domineering in his power. He's got sword in hand. He's got arrows in his quiver. 
He mounts His royal steed and goes forth to defend the truth, to uphold justice, to conquer His enemies. He rides on victoriously. His kingdom isn't short-lived. Rather, it endures forever. Verse 6, Your your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And it's right here we see that Psalm 45 has a larger scope than we might first have expected. Uh, The king here is addressed as deity. He is called God. That's why in the New American Standard, a lot of uh, verses are capitalizing, right? He's blessed you forever, your sword, your thigh. They're all capitalized. They're all referring to God in this instance. It's because it's referring to the perfect wedding. It's the perfect groom. So this is talking about. He sits upon His throne that lasts forever. He never relinquishes that throne. So he never dies, never gives it up. He lives and rules forever. And here, we see an instance of a passage quoted in Hebrews. Right? can... Um, really carry the same theme as the other passages. Right? Remember last week we talked about 2 Samuel 7? We, we talked there about the, the line of David being anointed with this one. Out of his seed would come one who would rule and reign forever. His kingdom, God says, shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. We see the, the parallel thought right here in verse 6. Your throne is forever. Right? That's what I was talking about earlier, about how, how these passages kind of just, just go together and they link together. It's a picture of Jesus being the King on this throne forever to have a, a, a dominion that lasts throughout all time. In 2 Samuel 7, we saw God's promise was to have a divine Messiah. You remember I said that one of the seed, the, the seed of David that was the Messiah, either his throne could last forever because he has children, 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 children forever, or he has one that lasts, endures, and reigns forever. And that is the Messiah who indeed has got to be deity. Yes, we got and we see it even here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And we see back in Hebrews that this is being addressed to Jesus. It says, but of the Son, He says, but of Jesus, He says, your throne is forever and ever. And that's the point. The point is that here we have a divine King, Jesus Christ. And as such, the divine King is better than angels, isn't He? Of course He is. So we continue in verse 6. We see the, the characteristic of His reign, which is characteristic of, of the reign of God, what it will be like, what it is like. He says, a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And this describes Jesus and His kingdom perfectly. It's a a righteous kingdom. It's done away where all wickedness is gone away because the king hates wickedness. He wants justice to prevail. God gives governmental rulers basically two fundamental tasks. is all they need to do. They are to punish evildoers. They are to praise those who do right. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. To some extent, all governments on the planet do this. They punish evildoers, praise those who do right. Especially on, on the micro level a little bit. You know, which is people, because if, cause if, if, if evildoers weren't punished, it, anarchy would totally reign and they would usurp the king. So there is, so there is some justice. All, all countries have a law court. Now some may be corrupt and some may not do the job well, some may be better than others, but none of them reign perfectly, but Jesus reigns perfectly. Justice completely prevails because He loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. The thrust of our text here is this. 
is that the king is particularly focused upon having a righteous kingdom. He's attentive to the issues of righteousness and justice. And we would expect such from a a reign from God. His kingdom is a righteous kingdom. In God's kingdom, there will be no injustice. God will make sure it's all right. And that's God's blessing upon that kingdom. And that's what we see here in verse 7. It says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Okay. It's addressed to Jesus. And it says, God, your God, blesses you. Here we see God blessing God. The king is identified in verse 6 as being God. And yet in verse 7 we see that God is anointing God. And you say, how can that be? Well, here's the Trinity in the Old Testament. Actually, only two members of the Trinity. We can fill that out with other Scriptures. But we see in the Godhead multiple persons. Because God is one in the Scriptures, it says. But here we see God blessing God. And so the best way to understand it is, is three persons in the one unity of the Godhead. That's the character of God. It's the mystery of the Trinity right here in Psalm 45. Furthermore, verse 7 has messianic overtones of this whole anointing. Uh, anointed you. The Hebrew word there is Messiah, from which we get Messiah. That is potentially a, an anointing of a Messiah word, the, the anointed one. And we saw that last week in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 spoke about how the nations were raging against the king and his anointed, against the Messiah and against the sovereign Lord. Uh, similar kind of threads here is that God anoints this God King who is also the Messiah. And notice how He anoints Him. He anoints Him with oil of joy above your fellows. He's anointed Him with gladness. It gives a great picture of Jesus. Don't ever think of Jesus in heaven as a grumpy ruler of the universe. He's not. Jesus isn't a grumpy ruler looking down on all your sins being disgusted with us. That's just not who Jesus is. Jesus rules with a joy-filled spirit. Jesus is in a joy-filled heaven right now. He's delighted to be upon His throne. And later in Hebrews, we'll even see this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We are told to fix our eyes upon Jesus who for the joy set before Him, right? the joy that He would experience now, for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus was dying upon the cross, He conquered victoriously because He had a joy in mind. He had the joy of ruling and reigning upon His throne, which is where He is now. And He longs for you to know that joy as well. So believe in this One who rules and reigns joyously. Well, for the sake of completeness and time, we're going to zip through the rest of the psalm, just commenting lightly, but just show you how it is a marriage psalm. Verse 8, All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments, you have made glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. In other words, all your garments are prepared. The musicians are in place. The guests have arrived. The king is seated and decked out right next to the the queen of Ophir at her side. They're all beautiful, all ready for the the wedding. The, The bride is described here in verse 10. Listen, O daughter. Give attention. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. 
The time has come for her to leave her housewood and and join the king in holy matrimony, forgetting her father's house, but going to live in the palace of the king. And upon seeing the bride, the king is filled with passion. It says in verse 11, then the king will desire your beauty. These words really take us, I think, to in some way the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus Christ desires the beauty of the bride which He Himself has made, He sanctified her through the washing of the water with the Word. He sanctified her, His bride, through His blood and made the church lovely. And so that Jesus will marry not sinful us, He will marry perfected us, perfected and washed clean by His blood. And then the the, the church in turn goes and worships Him. That's what it says here in verse 11. Because He is your Lord, bow down to Him. And here we see the Queen bowing in in respect to the King. And ultimately we can think about how the church ultimately will worship Jesus. Verse 12, The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. We see the the guests arriving with gifts in hand, with well-wishing in their hearts. In verse 13, we see the marriage ceremony. The king's daughters, the daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. Speaking about her gown, just gold, pure, expensive, nice. And she'll be led to the king in embroidered work, walking down the aisle. Her virgins, her companions who follow her will be brought to you. So they're coming, this wedding procession coming in. They'll be led forth with gladness and rejoicing and they will enter into the king's palace. Here's the bride radiant. Her clothes magnificent, accompanied by her fellow virgins. They enter the palace where the wedding takes place. And then we jump forward to the fruit of the wedding, which is offspring. In the place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people will give you thanks forever. We see here the progeny of the king, just the, the kingdom which goes on and on and on and on. Just... Just we see this wedding, the kingly wedding has overtones of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it all comes back to this. Jesus Christ is royalty. And it's royalty. He is better than the angels because the angels have never ascended to the status of king. Okay, got it? Let's go back to, uh, to Hebrews. Maybe you can put a bullet in there or some kind of piece of paper. I'd be smart to do that too. We'd go back, go back to Hebrews. We see in verses 10 through 12 yet another reason why Jesus is better than the angels. Before I give it to you, I want to spend some moments looking at these verses, thinking about them, and then I'll give you my point because it flows here from the text. In verses 10 through 12, we read this. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They, that is the heavens and the earth, will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you'll roll them up. And like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. These verses, again, are addressed to you, Jesus. Verse 8, of the Son, He says this. And, continuing on to speak of the Son, He says, You, Lord... They speak of how Jesus is the Creator. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. This is creation language. We saw this a few weeks ago in verse 2 when it speaks about through Jesus, God also made the world. And who's making the world? Jesus is the one who made the world. Unlike the angels, 
who are made into winds. Jesus created the winds. He created the world. So on one level, they speak about Jesus as Creator. And yet, verse 11 and 12 have kind of a different theme a little bit. They speak more about His, his eternity. Look at verse 11. It says, you remain. Right? The things of earth will perish away. You remain. Verse 12. You... Um, verse 11. Uh, what verse am I here? You are the same and your years will not come to an end. That's verse 12. It just speaks about His, his enduring nature. So he's, he's the Creator, which makes Him better than the angels. He's eternal, which is a little bit like the creation. Um, a like, like angels. We, we all are, are eternal. But it's eternal in a different respect. He's eternal in a sense with reference to creation that the creation will pass away, but Jesus remains forever. Things of this earth will be done. And so in taking these two themes into account, here's my fourth point. Jesus is the eternal Creator. He's the Creator that's eternal. And notice His eternality has reference to the earth. has reference how the earth will pass away, but Jesus continues on. The illustration here is clothes that wear out. Do any of you know of clothes that wear out? Yeah? I know of clothes that... Uh, Michelle, you want to say something? <laughs> Ray, Ray, you, you, you thought about wearing your pants today. You didn't wear your pants today. You did? Uh, stand up, Ray. How about you show us your pants? They are, they are wearing away. How about you standing up there? Yeah, shedding away a little bit. Oh, holes. But why do you wear them? They're your favorite garments, right? <laughs> I remember Gordy Bell had this uh, sweatshirt that he had that he... Um, he always changed his oil in the same sweatshirt. And Ruthie wanted to just say, let's throw that sweatshirt away. And he said, no, this is my oil-changing sweatshirt. You, can you imagine what that sweatshirt looks like? Having changed oil in his car over years and years and years, that's always what he did. You know, this is like perfect for, time for an illustration, right? So uh, I talked with Yvonne, and we looked desperately for this illustration. I, I'm, I'm thinking about this sweatshirt that I have had that is most, my favorite sweatshirt and it said UCLA like uh, across across the front of it and um, you, you know like a like a, I don't know that that material they put on, on top of there and it was kind of worn away so they kind of had holes here so I, I could put my hand just pockets like right in here behind my sweatshirt and you know my, my beard is rough along the collar and so it was scruffed up all along the collar and I had kind of holes in my sleeves but I, I love wearing it in fact that's why it got so bad because I wore it so bad well Lo and behold, we went searching for this sweatshirt of mine, which I haven't worn for some time, and you know what happened? Ivana rolled it up and threw it away. That's okay, that's okay. I've got, I've got enough other sweatshirts, but I'll, I'll wear them all until they're, until they're done. But I'll wear my favorite ones first. But I do have a good illustration here. This, this is... This is... This is half of Hannah's old blanket. Right, Hannah? And as I, as I recall, I'm trying to think, this, this spot here is, is ripped purposely because somehow she put her thumb in here, as I remember, and kind of, did you do that? I, I remember some of our kids did that because even, even over here on this one, I think there's a, yeah, little, little holes in here and it's ragged and this is a guy, and, and you know what? Think about how how difficult is it for us merely to roll this up and throw it away. On one level, it's pretty easy. Now, now we have lots of sentimental value attached to this, is why we still have this thing. All right, but 
It's easy for Avon to roll my sweatshirt up and throw it away. It's easy for us to do that. And so likewise, it's easy for Christ to take the whole universe, rolling it up like a scroll, like Revelation 6.14 says, and just throw it away. And, And the ease with which He can do that is the point of the passage. The creation will crumble, but Christ will endure. The universe began with Jesus, and Jesus will end it. He'll roll it up like an old rag and cast it aside. That's the picture here. And and none of the angels can do this. None of the angels created the world. None of the angels have sovereignty over the world. They can say, angel, okay, we're going to stop the world right now. They're going to destroy the world. They can't. It doesn't work. Only Jesus can. makes him better. Now, we've looked at the original context for all the Old Testament passages here, most of them. I think it would be good for us to do as well here. Verses 10 through 12 come from Psalm 102. So you can turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 102. Now we don't know who wrote this psalm. We only know the superscript, a little bit about him. We know that he was facing great difficulties in his life. It says this, A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. We might easily call the writer of this psalm, Mr. Afflicted is his name, so I want to call you Mr. Afflicted is who this is. On the one hand, it's a sad psalm because he's afflicted. It's a a prayer of one whose life is difficult. He's distressed, he's afflicted, he's lonely, finds himself the object of derision by his enemies. And on the other hand, it's an incredibly happy psalm because it gives hope. It points to God who abides forever. It points to God who gives grace. It points to the one who saves. Verse 20. Well, let me, let, me, let me begin reading. As I read, notice his affliction. Psalm 102, he says this, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and is withered away. Indeed, I, forgot, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I become like an owl in the waste places. I I lie awake. I become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow and I wither like grass. Do you sense the desperation in this man's voice? Do you sense his depression? Do you sense his anguish? Do you sense his affliction? He's in pain and difficulties of life and realizes, verse 11 says, my days are short, my days are like the lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass. On the one hand, it's stretched out like a long shadow and on the other hand, it's withering away quickly. It's just fleeting like a shadow and he's just, he's depressed, he's afflicted. And then in verse 12, we see the hinge of the whole psalm where hope is found. Verse 12, but you, O Lord, abide forever and your name to all generations in contrast to all the difficulties that Mr. Affliction was experiencing, he said, God, you remain forever. And then he just rehearses the blessings of God. Look at them. You will arise, verse 13, and have compassion on Zion. For it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. 
Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity on, for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in His glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute. He has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generations to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear their groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell the name of the Lord in Zion and praise in Jerusalem when the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Notice what encourages the psalmist in his difficulty. It's nothing personal to him. There's nothing about me, nothing about I, nothing about how you've helped me. On the contrary, it's all about the saving power of God. It's all about how the saving power of God will come upon His nations of which He will be a part. And it's God who will endure. He's got a bigger plan. He's even talking about verse 18. The, the generation to come is going to praise the Lord. He sees His, his plan, His role, this whole plan is just a, a temporary blade of grass that eventually is, is working to then praise God and, and have others. So you think about this. The circumstances of Mr. Afflicted haven't changed. We see him in verse 23 the same exact way as he was in verse 11. God has weakened my strength. He's shortened my days. I'm living in a short life and this short life is filled with trouble. And, and yet there's hope, right? And where's hope? Hope is the fact that God endures forever. And then comes our quote from Hebrews, verse 25. Of old, O God, You founded the earth and the heavens are the work of Your hands. Even they will perish. And I'm part of that creation. I'm going to perish as well. But You remain. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue and your descendants will be established before you. So even there, in light of just my days are are small, yet we will continue on just like God has continued on. Now it ought not to be lost on us that the one saving in Psalm 102 is identified as Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. There's nothing inherent in Psalm 102 that would lead us to draw that conclusion. But it's a proper conclusion to draw because Hebrews 13 verse 8 said Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what this psalm is talking about, the one who endures forever. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says that Jesus made the world. He's the creator of the universe, which is what Psalm 102 speaks about. Hebrews is all about Jesus being our Savior. In fact, we will see that. That's where chapter 1 is headed. In fact, turn back in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, or actually we're going to chapter 2. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and it's all going towards the salvation that's given us in Jesus. For this reason, what reason? The reason that, that Jesus is better than the angels. We've got a great salvation. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, right? The angels are the messengers of the word. If the word spoken through them proved unalterable. And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There it is. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews is all about the saving plan of God in Jesus Christ. 
So it's appropriate here that we see the Savior of Psalm 102 is none less than Jesus. We have a great Savior. And we're not going to escape if we neglect this great salvation that we have, Psalm 102. Jesus is better than the angels. Angels can't save their messengers, their servants. So don't look to angels to save you. Look to Jesus. And if you're like Joan Wester Anderson, you might be in danger of missing the Savior in the midst of your being consumed with angels. Well, that was my fourth point. Jesus is the eternal Creator. The one who sustains, the one who saves. Final point. We see that Jesus is the Son. He's worshipped. He's royalty. He's the eternal Creator. Verse five, verses uh, 13 and 14, my final point. Jesus is the Sovereign One. Verses 13 and 14, But to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Question number one. Question number two, Are they angels? Not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? We see two questions. They're, they're rhetorical. The first question starts in verse 13. To which of the angels has He ever said, which of the angels ever received this honor of, of seated, being seated at the right hand of the throne of God? Well, none of them did. This is the same argument he used in verse 5. To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? It's like an inclusio. It begins this text this way and it ends this text this way. To which of the angels did God ever do this for? He didn't. None of the angels did he ever do that. None of the angels were ever told to sit. Rather, the angels are told, the angels are sent out to serve. Jesus even spoke about the angels who are continually beholding the face of God. As they're continually beholding that face, though, he talks about then these little ones who have the angels guarding them, protecting them. So they're watching the face of God, seeing to say, well, God, God says, okay, go help him. Go help him. Go there. Go do this. And as soon as he makes a hand motion with his hand, they are off and gone. They're like eyes of servants who look to the hands of their master, seeing what God says. And as soon as he says go, they are gone who angels are. By way of contrast, the king, rather than being sent out, the king sits on the throne. The contrast between the angels and the sun is apparent. It says in verse 13, sit at my right hand, but the ministering spirits are sent out. Well, to show this again, he quotes from Psalm 110. So let's, let's go back there quickly. We're running out of time, but we will come quickly. Psalm 110 It's the first of several quotations in the book of Hebrews from Psalm 110. Um, it was alluded to in chapter 1, verse 3, when it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was from Psalm 110. It's quoted in Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13, in contrast to the high priests who are about doing their work. It says that Jesus, on the other hand, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward till his enemies made a footstool for his feet. They're busy working, but Jesus sat down. His work is accomplished upon the throne. His sacrifice is better. He doesn't need to keep working at it. Psalm 110 is also alluded to in Hebrews 12, verse 2, where we're, we're commanded to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes. Think about Him. Reflect upon Him, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising His shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. We are commanded to think about the place of Jesus. We're commanded to think of how He sits to the right hand of God. 
the way we get through trials and agonies of life. Hebrews 12.3, Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. So you don't grow weary in doing good. When our attention is upon Jesus, we consider His trials that He went through and endured and our souls are strengthened in it as well. Psalm 110. It's quoted 22 times in the New Testament, the most often quoted psalm in all the Scriptures. It's power-packed. Verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord. Here's David writing and saying, Jehovah is writing to my Lord, the Messiah, who also, by the way, is His Son. And as Jesus confronted the Pharisees, how can He be called the Son if He is also His Lord? It's only because He's deity. Alluding to the deity of Christ again. Again, we see this enthronement thing. Sit at my right hand. He's sitting at the throne until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It pictures the sovereign Lord, the Messiah, see at the right hand of the throne of power. And no angel ever received this honor. You will look long and hard throughout all the Scriptures looking for any place where angels are honored or rewarded or promised some kind of reward or rank or, or given any gift or, or any kind of honor bestowed on them. They're not. The angels are like servants who when they've done their work said, we deserve no honor. We are the unworthy slave. We've only done what we ought to have done. That's how you find angels. You don't find them receiving honor and praise and gifts and promises. They're not. But Jesus received honor to sit at such a place. Much better than the angels. And Jesus sits here at the seat of power and victory and authority. Pictures here, verse 1 Sit there until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The picture here is of Jesus right, sitting upon the throne. And His enemies are down. He's got His feet just propped up on Him. He's victory. He's ruling. In fact, in the ancient world, kings would often take their, their conquered king and they would put their foot on their neck. It's a sign of victory. That's what's being spoken about here in Psalm 110. Jesus conquers. And that's what Psalm 110 is all about. Let's just read it here. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. There's Jesus, ruling and reigning. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. God's people freely joining forces with Jesus. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, parentheses. I'd love to talk about this verse. We don't have time. But I will get a chance to talk about this verse because this verse is really the premise of much of what is commented on all of Hebrews 7 is about Melchizedek. Hebrews 7 starts about this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, talks about him. And is the premise for the fact that the the priesthood of Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood because he's a priest of the line of Melchizedek, not of the line of Levitical priests. And that's all in chapter 9. We'll get that a later date. We'll come back here so you just remember that. So, anyway. Verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. It's a victory psalm. Jesus has the victory. He is the ruling, reigning one, sitting at the right hand of God. He has conquered. In fact, that's the point of the passage in Hebrews, right? Turn back there to Hebrews. He's obtained victory. 
He's seated in his victory seat. The place of honor, his work is accomplished, his deeds are done. He now rules as king. And by way of contrast here, verse 14 comes. The contrast in the king who sits and the, the angels who are sent out, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? You know, there's almost a, a note of sarcasm here. Jesus sits on the throne and angels, aren't they just merely like, like sent out to serve us? Will inherit salvation? Aren't they like so? What is your fascination with angels, dear people? I don't know. I don't understand. Jesus is on the throne, and you want to pay attention to his subjects. That's like like traveling to London, seeing Queen Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace, getting getting privileged entrance into the 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 throne room where she is, and she's seated upon the throne, and and you don't look at Queen Elizabeth. Rather, you focus your attention upon the maid who's in charge of the linens at Buckingham Palace. And, and starts talking about them and fascinated about the linens. Well, why do you wash them? Do you, do you wash them with soft water? Does the water come from the Thames? How, how do you, you know? How, like you've missed the point. You're looking at the maid rather than looking at the queen. All those who look to angels rather than looking to Jesus. Well, this verse does bring up the concept of guardian angels, perhaps. I mentioned before, Jesus said about the, the angels are before the Father looking at the face of Him, ready to go out and protect the little ones who are in danger. And I think it does speak in some sense about angels. They are servants to us. They render service to us. They help us. In Psalm 91, it says that He will give His angels charge over you to guard you in all your way. They will bear you up on their hands so you don't strike your foot against a stone. And, and, and I do think that a general principle in Scripture is that the righteous days will be long, the wicked's days will be short, it may well be that angels are sent out in some instances to help righteous lives live longer. Right? That car crash that never happens, that disaster you just barely miss, there could be some angels involved in that for sure. I mean, after all, angels shut the mouths of lions to protect Daniel, to prolong his days. An angel delivered the apostles from prison. Angels come in, and, and even on occasion it, uh, later on in, in Acts, an angel delivered Peter from prison. It is interesting in Acts chapter 5 that that, that was protecting Peter from death because um, he had just... I said, no, that's not quite right. In chapter 12, it's protecting Peter from death. Herod had just killed James, and Peter was in prison about to race, see the same fate. And the angel rescued him out so Peter could go and spread the gospel longer. Angels ministered to Jesus in a time of weakness. And so it is that we see here, angels are service. And, and I would not doubt that angels are around. Perhaps they've helped you. Maybe you don't see them. In fact, it even says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says that we don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this what? Some have entertained angels without knowing it. So, if you know it, then maybe you'll talk to Jean Wester Anderson and get in her book. You know, I was saved by angels. But the premise here is that you don't even know where and where angels are. Maybe you helped them. Maybe you visited them. Maybe they visited you, helped you, given some counsel and advice. Who knows? But they are there. But they are not the ones to take the honor. Jesus is the one who has the honor. And I simply say, may we worship Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word, which is so crystal clear. Jesus is better than the angels. 
and pray that you would um, cause us to look to him. And our, our struggle today might not be angels. Um, our struggle today might be something else. There might be other things that we look to as more important than angels. We might look to status. We might look to our sports gods. Or we might look to money. Or we might look at other things as more important than Jesus. And I pray by your strength and your grace you'd help us to look to Jesus as the greatest of all things. And I think of how this will flesh itself out. This is going to be the message at Rock Valley Bible Church for another year that Jesus is better. And so I pray that we would look to him and realize the better position we have so we don't turn away from it, we don't forsake it. So help us, strengthen us in these days. God, I pray you'd strengthen us even this day to focus on him who loved us and released us from our sins by his blood. In whose name we pray, amen. And you're dismissed. Have a great day.